Hello and welcome to the VOE podcast, an extension of Voices of Experience, the signature speaker series at the University of Denver's Daniels College of Business. We're your hosts, Amber D'Angelo, Jake Jensen, and I'm Crystal Griffith from the Daniels Office of Communications and Marketing. We'll be unpacking topics at the intersection of business and the public good with CEOs and other business leaders from the Daniels community. Let's dive in. Joining me today is John Windsor, CEO of Open Assembly and an executive in residence at Harvard Business School's Laboratory for Innovation Science. While we'll ask John about both of those titles, we are eager to hear about his thoughts on the future of work since he's writing a book on the topic right now. John is a 1986 graduate of the Daniels College of Business, receiving his MBA. John, welcome to the VOE podcast. Super excited to be here. Love the U. Um, it was definitely formative in my in my um, years, especially as an entrepreneur. John, let's start with your background. You have more than 30 years of experience in entrepreneurship and leadership. You've been in charge of innovation, strategy, marketing, advertising in the fitness space. Your background is very intriguing and very diverse. So talk a little bit about your journey becoming CEO of Open Assembly and what mm-hmm. Open Assembly is. And open assembly is essentially the the commercial side of the of the laboratory, based on the work the the lab's previous name was the NASA Tournament Lab. So we were focused on solving hard problems for NASA using open talent as a solution. And then I'm writing a new book um, with the guys at the lab. I'm not sure of the title. I think we're going to call it Open uh, Agile and Networked. Kind of the idea of open talent agile process and uh, networked organizations. Let's talk a little bit about this current labor and employment crisis, as you know, right? Right. Like it's, you know, people cannot find workers, but then workers also seem like they can't find jobs. So it's, it's like a unique situation, I feel like in time. So talk about what, I guess, what's going on? What do you see happening in the world? And then it sounds like you and Harvard have some interesting ideas about solving it. Uh, maybe (laughs) we'll see, (laughs) we'll see, we'll see if they're relevant. I mean, the world's changing so fast. So I, I think we have to think about, you know, like how we build organizations, right? And so when you think about the, 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 the movement from the agricultural age, the industrial age, it was, it was for a while, it was very much apparent that, you know, there were new things that needed to be built. Let's just say cars, right? But yet the way work got done, the organizational structure was very firmly rooted in kind of a communal agricultural point of view. And so when, when, you know, the first thing Henry Ford did was created the model N and the model N, it was a big advancement. It took, you know, a couple of months to, or sorry, a couple of weeks to build a car. And he actually changed things around the model N he laid the plans out on the floor and then he laid all the parts on top of the plans. And then people came together and built the car and it went from two weeks to two days. It was really an advancement. It was amazing. But then when he, when he decided to, to do the model T, he actually changed it around. He just said, instead of everybody working together, why don't we create a, an assembly line? Why don't we have one person in charge of one thing? We'll create an 84-step assembly line. And by people getting focused on that one thing, then we'll we'll create some more momentum. Well, all of a sudden, Model T's could be built in two hours. So big advances by changing organizational structures to match 
the needs in the marketplace of these new things being invented. And so how does how do organizations really work in this new world of work where things are faster? And then on top of you throw in the pandemic where, you know, things are, everything's remote. We don't really know who's an employee and who's not, who's on the call. We just know who's doing great work and who's not. Mm. And so what kinds of new structures do we need to build to allow for these kind of open talent marketplaces to exist? And so, you know, what we're trying to figure out is what are the steps that organizations need to do to evolve to that? How do they do that? How do they look at the world in a, in a platform market, marketplace kind of kind of way without destroying themselves? Because, sure. you know, you can see a lot of firms I and mean, Facebook is a great example that just, and social media, it's just kind of completely destroyed the publishing industry because they have a new way of communicating news or communicating people's ideas, right? It's not, it's just, it's a distribution tactic more than it is a strategy. So anyway, that's kind of what we've been working on. And I think specific to your question, one of the things we're seeing is that coming out of COVID, there's an incredible acceleration of need, right? So if we look at specifically the tech talent marketplace, right now there's a 40 million uh, talent deficit. There there are 40 million more jobs available globally than there are talent to fill those jobs. And that's going to expand to 150 million by 2025. So there's no way that a company can use the tried and true methodology of, Hey, let's have the HR department, hire some folks that'll take, you know, three months to interview them, three months to hire them. Um, We'll get there and then they need to hire staff. That'll take six months. And then we might have a strategy on how to approach something like AI a year and a half from now. Versus, you know, let's get together this week with the 10 best thinkers on AI. Let's do a four-day jam session. Let's figure out what the tasks need to be done. Who are the best people in the world to do each of these tasks? And in three weeks, we have a strategy ready to go. So anyway, that's kind of the the stuff that we're working on. And and I think there's significant implications. I think you're seeing because that tech talent deficit that all of a sudden everything's flipped. The workers are in charge, right? The workers know that in these specific areas that they're kind of a, uh, there's more, there's more demand than there is supply. And so instead of before HR departments are built in a place where there's a lot of supply for talent and not a much but enough demand. So by flipping that paradigm, you're seeing really crazy things like the great resignation, like, you know, the, the resonate resume tsunami where just everybody's looking for something new to do. Microsoft recently reported that they think that globally 40% of, of the workforce is going to look for another job in the next two years. So I think you're seeing this kind of incredible upheaval in the marketplace and the control of who has the power now in the worker, uh, you know, company perspective. Now workers have the power and they're going to demand more. They're going to demand, you know, higher pay. They're going to demand different working conditions, working from home, remote working, you know, working from Bali, wherever it is, and they're going to want to work two or three jobs. You know, they want to work when they want to work, how they want to work. Um, and that's what we're seeing. These open platforms really provide people. Yeah, we're seeing, right, people, employees who are in demand, of course, not yeah. everybody, but employees who are in demand saying, well, you know, it's, it's really expensive to live in San Francisco or exactly. Seattle. So why don't I move to North Dakota and keep my amazing pay and there, you know, I think a lot of companies are trying to figure out how to deal with that when there might be some backlash initially. Yeah, but I think the reality is, is like, that's going to be the thing. What the, the, the guys that, so Paul Livka, who's a CTO and CXO at, at Wellmark, um, at Wellmark in, uh, Healthcare, because they're a Blue Cross Blue, Blue Shield 
um, provider in the Midwest. And he describes it really, really well. He says, hey, I, I was going to go hire a, a, a woman, really excited about hiring her. And she lives in Des Moines. And we have a new kind of hybrid workforce policy that says, um, you know, you only have to work in the office one day a week. And so, you know, historically, he's been the best employer in the Des Moines, Iowa metro area, kind of could get any employee wanted, paid at the height of the, you know, the, the scale. So he kind of had his choice and there was a bit of, you know, expectation there. And so he called this woman and gave her a job offer for $90,000 and said, wow, you only have to come into the office one day a week. You can do your thing, you know, and she called back and she said, no, that's really awesome. I appreciate that. A Silicon Valley, you know, tech firm that's really highly rated, um, offered me a completely remote job for $140,000. And so wow. his point to me was, it used to be that I had this, you know, pool that was pretty, you know, ring fenced uh, of, of 1.2 million employees in the Des Moines area that I competed with for, that I competed for. And now I'm competing with tech firms from Silicon Valley that have 40%, they're willing to pay 40% more Silicon Valley rates but they have a, a, a job pool or, a, or a, a talent pool of 150 million people. They can sure. choose anybody they want. And so his point was, his prediction was, is every company will have to go 100% remote. Like that's going to, if you want the talent, you're going to have to deliver what the talent wants. And so that's what I think is going to happen is that, yeah, I mean, there's those jobs you have to be there for. And, and, but, you know, it's a talent war and you're not going to win without the best talent and the best talent now has the choice. They, they get to choose when they want to work, where they want to work, and how they want to work. Fascinating. I mean, to me, that, that brings up kind of two maybe questions, problems. One is, makes me think that the employers who are more antiquated, uh, not wanting flexibility, may end up with uh, less quality. For sure. And then, do small businesses suffer in some ways if they can't compete on the same level? I mean, I... I don't know. I mean, I think that that's why open talent exists, right? That people are going to go to the open talent platforms. You see this in tech all the time. And, you know, the, the best data scientists don't want to work for any one company. They want to do the most interesting projects that they can learn the fastest and have the best skills. So they're going to work on a project basis. And so if I was starting a company today, I would do it, you know, I wouldn't have any employees. I would have it all project-based and get the best talent in the world and have them work on a, on a, on specific projects, taskify my work. So I'm, I'm so intrigued by this idea. So let's say you're, you know, a student at DU, for example, yeah. and yeah. whether you're an undergrad or a grad and, but you don't have really a body of work yet. So do you feel like that kind of potential employee is still really um, marketable in open talent, or do you advise they actually get a job somewhere to develop that and then start building up a portfolio and get a website and showcase their work? Like, how does this work for the worker? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really simple. I think that, you know, I, I would, you know, at least my experience in, in bigger companies is, you know, internships are akin to slavery, right? They're akin to like get coffee, um, and, and make copies and maybe sit on a meeting or two and you just don't get anything out of it. But if I was doing an internship now, I would join, you know, and even during class, I would join three or four different, you know, platforms and start playing. One of the great examples at NASA we love to talk about is that the home, Homeland Security came to NASA and said, this was 10 years ago and said, 
we need we need to improve the algorithm that controls the x-ray machines at airport you know the big ones with the wand mm. that sweeps around and at the time that the the accuracy of the um of those were was about 70 percent and they'd had they'd have the best data scientists at hsa and the best data scientists from the from the company that built those you know making nice progress 10 percent a year five percent a year really good stuff and so they went to to NASA. NASA has a thing called Center of Excellence for Collaborative Innovation. And NASA went to a platform called Kaggle. Kaggle decided to put a, a, a contest together. And, you know, over a three-week period in that contest, it was a global contest to improve this algorithm. And so what was interesting is the top 20 entries, this, this is, you know, these are the best people in the world over 10 years, $30 million estimated that have gotten it to 70% accuracy, right? In two weeks, a bunch of entrepreneurs or, you know, software engineers from around the world, the top 25 were better than 95% accurate. So quantum leap in, in progression, all for $25,000 for the winner. Um, that's super interesting. That happens all the time in open talent, you know, especially in the tech world. But what I thought was super interesting was the person who got the fourth highest, you know, result from the algorithm was a freshman at Berkeley who was a game, who was learning how to build games at Berkeley as a software engineer and, you know, just a, a game developer <clears throat> and decided, looked at that problem and said, this isn't a, you know, an AI problem or, a, or an algorithm problem. This is a gaming problem. So what he did is he built little figures for his game, digital figures, and put weapons on those figures and then ran a really, really fast simulation on a software, you know, gaming simulation. And through that simulation, the software created an algorithm that could detect those weapons. And so he won a bunch of money and he also solved this big problem for, for HSA. And he got a big job offer from HSA as I a data so. scientist, right? And so, you know, that to me, I think it's awesome. Like all of a sudden a kid who's a freshman at Berkeley gets to play with the very best people in the world to solve problems. And what we find in these platforms is that it gives you the, the freedom to not just play on things, to do things, but also to learn. A lot of people are going to platforms to say, huh, I've never gone and I worked on anything on quantum, you know, in quantum computing. And, oh, look, there's a contest in quantum computing. I'm not going to do very good in it, but I'm going to play on it. I can watch everybody else. I'm going to learn a lot from it. So this idea that, you know, upskilling is a really important part of the open talent ecosystem is a, is a really important reason for students to get involved. Absolutely. And, you know, that I just resonates with me so well because we do this all the time here at Daniels, right? You've got a case competition. You're working with a real world yeah, problem, that's awesome. a real world data set. Um, we do race in case. We do inclusive excellence case competition, right? So our students are getting hands-on experience with these situations. And to your point, right, that is part of their portfolio then. I'm really curious a little bit about this, your lens through entrepreneurship. I mean, mm -hmm. that is a big program here, as you know, yeah, yeah. at Daniels. Um, and Joshua Ross recently launched entrepreneurship at DU. So we're kind of the hub of entrepreneurship for the entire university. In that space, to me, it just seems like you were one of these people that, oh, well, let's run with this for a while. But then you would see this other need and say, mm -hmm. no, there's something there. What, mm -hmm. what is that? What's going mm -hmm. How do you know? Oh, I, that's a great question. I, first of all, you know, I was in the very first entrepreneurial class at, at DU and I think Ron Gist ran it back then. 
And so I think it was 80, it was 1986. So okay, um, it's nice to see it's developed so much. Um, you know, I would just say fail often and fail fast. And, you know, I think that's the key, right? And, and always ask why not, like, you know, instead of why. I think we get stuck in why and it takes us down a wormhole. Like, why didn't that work? And how do we make it work? And instead of looking at the world and say, well, why not? Why not do that? Um, be a little bit contrarian and, and look, at, look at the world in a new way. There's all this, you know, I, I, and I can see it, right? In, in, in large, steady organizations, you know, you don't want to like be the speedboat that moves around because that hurts your ability to produce earnings for your shareholders. Um, but in the context of, you know, being successful today, it's really speedboat, right? You, and, and you can't think about like hitting home runs. You got to hit like singles and doubles and strike out a few times. And, you know, you've got to really just have experiences because what I've found now in my career, it's like, I don't know. It's the craziest thing. I keep telling my sons actually, you know, just find one thing. And it seems so odd for me to say this because I'm definitely, not, I'm a, definitely a jack of all trades, but I just say, find one thing and just become the very best in the world at it. And just like the most micro thing in the world. Just try, try to be the best. And, and, you know, something you're super passionate about. And I, I found that, and I give that advice a lot. It's like, instead of doing all this extraneous stuff of like, Oh, you know, I want to build a company because I want to make a lot of money or that's kind of interesting, but I got all these other interests, you know, I'm doing this because I really want to do that. Like do that, right? Do the thing you really love. Cause the greatest thing about the internet is no matter what happens, you know, you have a market. There's somebody else out there that can help you do your thing. One of my favorite experiences in the last couple of years, is I went to a, um, you know, retreat with a bunch of entrepreneurs. And this guy stood up and told me this great story. And he said, you know, he's like, yeah, I'm a, you know, successful entrepreneur from LA and <clears throat> we've raised a hundred million bucks and, you know, my company's a unicorn and, you know, it's worth a billion bucks. And, and um, so I'm pretty proud of myself and, and I'm, you know, doing my thing and, and we, we don't make money yet. Right. So we're still like pre, pre, you know, pre-revenue. And uh, so I go, you know, like I go to my sister's house for a wedding in New Hampshire and they live on a farm and, you know, I'm on my phone all the time and they're really relaxed and chill and, you know, just doing their thing. And my brother-in-law has this big beard and, you know, big overalls. And I'm kind of laughing at him saying, ah, if he really knew how the world works. I'm, I'm a unicorn, you know, and I'm doing all this great stuff, not making any money, but you know, we'll make money sometime. And, and the brother-in-law drifts out to the garage and, you know, this friend who was telling me the story said, he heard a chainsaw go off and he's like, Oh, you know, they're doing some little workout in the garage. I'm going to go check on how, how my brother-in-law is doing that poor guy. He's got to use his chainsaw. I'm, I'm looking at my, you know, shareholder agreement for next, for next quarter and got it, got it all dialed. And so he goes out and this guy's like with the chainsaw making signs, right. Cutting signs out of wood and, you know, finally gets his notice and, and his brother-in-law looks and says, it's the craziest thing. I make these signs and I put them on this platform called Etsy and I'm making $4 million a year off oh these signs. Oh my word, no it's, way. Yeah, he's like, he's like, it is crazy. These people love these signs. I can't make enough. I, my chainsaw runs out of oil and it's never sharp. And <laughs> I just sell, I can't keep up. But that $4 million just keeps coming in. And so my buddy is like, yeah, I walk back to the house. Like I, I, I actually have a losing you know, money that's losing money in LA and I'm stressed out hundred percent of the time and, and, and beholden to all these other people. And here my brother-in-law is, he drinks coffee when he wants to, he hangs out, 
whenever he, you know, wants to, he hangs out with his wife, my sister, and he, and he uses his chainsaw all day long and he's doing a hundred times better than I am. And so I think that's the reality, right? It's like find that passion and just do it really, really well. I love it. I love it. So as you know, Daniels is known for teaching ethical leadership and dedication to the public good. So talk a little bit about how those values factor into your role as a leader and entrepreneur. Oh, that's a great question. You know, I I think that's awesome that Daniels is doing that because I, you know, one of the things that we're really working, working at, uh, you know, the center of the transformational work is trying to figure out those ways to create the right social construct to make all this stuff happen because obviously you know people stick with jobs because of the benefits and things like that and they, they, in fact a lot of people stick with bad jobs for a long time because of that so my sense is is that there's lots and lots of good work to be done you know in those things and the reality is it's not just you know ethical business practices isn't just a nice to have anymore it's a must have because the world's just really transparent place and if you have bad behavior you know, glass door or a, a tweet or a video on Instagram can really ruin everything. Anything else you want to share that I haven't asked that we should ask you about? No, I, you know, I, I just, I love to you. And I, the more, the longer, the further I get away from it, the more I appreciate it. It's just got so much great momentum and it's just a, it's an honor to be an alumni. Love it. Thank you so much. This has been the VOE podcast. Produced by the Daniels College of Business and sponsored by U.S. Bank. Music by Joshua Metzl, music composition graduate student at the Lamont School of Music. Join us next time for more business insights from our community. In the meantime, visit daniels.du.edu slash VOE podcast. And please remember to like, follow, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.